Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview author Ilion Wu about her New York Times bestselling book, Master Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. It was published by Simon & Schuster in January 2023, and it details the daring escape from slavery by the couple Ellen and William Kraft. Ilion Wu was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly. Ilion, congratulations. A spectacular book. Thank you. Begin by telling us how you found Ellen and William Kraft or Croft? Kraft. And while I love biography, and all of us do, I do see this on the big screen. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, first of all, that's kind of how I pictured it. You know, when I set out to write this book, I didn't set out to write a biography, even though there are lots of little sort of mini biographies inside. I wanted to write the story of this couple in a particular moment as they intersected with the history of the nation in this really climactic period. So this is 1848, which is a time of worldwide revolt and national revolutions of all different kinds. I mean, you've got the transportation revolution and the information revolution. And I feel like the crafts really kind of connect with all of those movements. And I was really lucky that their original narrative, which they wrote in 1860, was assigned to me when I was in graduate school. So I was in a PhD program and I was taking a class on the literature of passing with Robert O'Mealy. And this was one of a number of works that we read. And it was just, I mean, I remember the dark of the library. I remember opening this book. At this time, the narrative wasn't really widely published. So I got this like third generation photocopy. But I just remember the whole thing sort of coming out in technicolor as I was reading. It really just grabbed me. And that was, you know, 20 years ago. You know, we're talking about this in 2023, and I have to tell you, I'm absolutely fascinated by passing. Mm. Absolutely fascinated. And there was a movie recently yes. about two women. Did you see it? I did. Rebecca Hall's movie. Yes. And that was actually one of the books that was assigned in the same class. Oh. And I think it draws on the racist element in your story, people just couldn't conceive of a light-skinned person passing like that and having a dark-skinned enslaved man attending to her. It is riveting. It really does. I mean, the story turns all these preconceptions of race upside down. And for white audiences, and there were audiences eventually because the crafts, after making their escape in 1848, after going through these harrowing four days of incredible drama, they take their story for several months on the road. So they are actually speaking and telling the story in front of huge groups of people. And the majority of them are white. 
and they are just shocked. I mean, there are newspaper reports of just there being this kind of electric current that runs through crowds as they see Ellen Craft, you know, the gasps that they report as well as people take her in. She's often sort of hidden from view until sort of a strategic moment and then she comes out and then there's this kind of aha moment as people behold her. So for white Northern audiences, her appearance was really confounding, shocking, not what they expected at all. But I salute these people in 1848. Imagine the guts it took, except as you point out, both mm -hmm. of them, rather than go through one more day of enslavement, mm -hmm. they were prepared to die. Talk a little bit about how Ellen, she, a black woman, camouflage herself as a white man. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, because she had inherited this pale skin from her father, who was also her first enslaver, she had actually been mistaken for a child of the family from when she was a very small girl. And that actually got her in a lot of trouble. So I'm sure she took pains to sort of not look white, to look the part of enslaved girl because it enraged her mistress, who was the wife of her father, who was her first enslaver. It enraged this mistress to see Ellen Craft, who was not her daughter, be mistaken for a legitimate child of the family. So from very early on, from her girlhood, Ellen had to sort of learn what are these differences? What are the superficial markers by which people are defining black and white? She's learning those codes. And in the beginning, she's playing against being white. And then as she enters into this disguise, she's capitalizing on all this knowledge that she has gained throughout her life. And the costume itself is pretty interesting. That's one of the things I was really kind of most excited about researching, especially since I have all sorts of history nerd friends. And one of my dearest history nerd friends, Lynn Bassett, is an expert on costume history. And I actually had to use her a couple of times during the course of this project, just dealing with pictures of the crafts. She could look at a picture and just by like looking at somebody's earrings or the, the way they're styled their hair and date a picture within five years from the 19th century. So I sat down with her and I was uh, showing her the pictures and I did my own research into how the crafts were describing the costume at the time. And I actually discovered that the picture that we have of Ellen Craft in disguise in this daguerreotype from late 1840s was not the exact clothing that she wore. She had actually been so afraid when she finished this escape that she ditched the actual clothing. You did report that in your book. I remember. Yes. So I ended up going back to the written accounts to see were these like, you know, extra special fancy items. Um, she had had William buy these items one at a time from different stores throughout the town so nobody would get suspicious. And she ended up with a vest that was way too big to the point that when she tried it on, William kind of panicked and was like, this is not going to work. It comes down to your hips. Like this just does not look good. She had a jacket because she was a small woman that also was not custom made for her. So that would have been too big. She had a nice hat. She had a pair of spurred boots and she had a white shirt. Was it a cravat that she had? Yeah, she had a cravat around her neck. And the pants are the only thing that were custom made because she's a seamstress and she sewed them for herself. But everything else is a little bit off. And the fact that the people who later saw her reported her as being so elegant and wonderfully dressed 
that's all a testament to her act because the clothes themselves were not great. The way I like to put it is it's not the man who made the clothes, it's Ellen Craft. Just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I remember your previous book, The Great Divorce, again, involving a couple and the Shakers. Yes. You must be drawn to telling the stories of couples (laughs) who either get in trouble or escape trouble. (laughs) That's an interesting pattern. I've never really quite seen it that way before, but that's definitely true. For biographers, it's easier. There's nothing easy about biography, but it's Mm -hmm. easier to deal with a single person and write about the history and life around them. But mm-hmm. you've done it twice now with mm-hmm. couples. That's true. Although some would say, I mean, the first book was really about Eunice Chapman. I mean, her fight to get her children back from the Shakers. So there is definitely this confrontation, this conflict with James Chapman, and he's a major character. And just like with this present book, my goal was not just to focus on an individual or a pair of individuals, but to use this story, to use this conflict to shed light on a whole era and a whole people. In the case of my first book, I was as interested in the Shakers, if not more than I was in Eunice Chapman. I was kind of actually obsessed with the Shakers since I was growing up. And what I really wanted to do in the beginning was to write about them. And then I found this just sensational story that really upended everything I thought I knew about the society. So you could say that maybe there's the couples, there's the world building, there is a the dream of having one's children to oneself, all these themes are sort of common to both the stories I've written so far. But I think in choosing this one, Master Slave, you have zeroed in on our greatest sin and how people try to escape from that. Absolutely riveting story. And I'm sorry for anyone listening to keep using those adjectives. So I want our author, to tell you more about the story. How long did it take you to write this? Well, I've been thinking about this for two decades or so since I was in graduate school. It didn't actually take me 20 years to write it because I did have other books and things in between. But I guess I started trying to write it maybe about 12 years ago for the first time. And I knew that in order to do the kind of extensive research, that I would need to do for this book. It wasn't the right time in my life and I sort of put it aside. Um, But that's really when I started doing a little bit of the digging, looking around in the secondary sources and such. It's in 2016 that I really started writing in earnest. Do you write after you do your research or do you research first? Do you do it together? Previously, I would do the research first, and then I would write. I really kind of like to have control and order and really kind of know everything I was going into. And this one, I just dove right into it. And I did a fair amount of research before I started, but then a lot of the research I did as I went. In the middle of this story, Master Slave, the escape, reading it alone by yourself, I was like, (laughs) Hurry up, hurry up. I was, I got so nervous and I thought, well, how is she going to end this book? Because your crisis is right in the middle. So you terrify everybody, they escape. Then it's 
is not happily ever after after that. I mean, they're still on the run. How did you handle that as a writer with your crisis right in the middle, really? Do you mean the crisis as in like when the slave hunters come after them? Yes. I guess I felt like the crisis kind of sustained throughout the book. I mean, of course, the journey itself is riveting. As soon as they get to the station, you know, there are three people who they know. I was kind of at the edge of my seat, too, thinking, oh, my gosh, Scott Cray is just sitting right next to her. How is she going to get out of this one? You know, even like when you think they're almost there, you know, but let's say somebody falls asleep. (laughs) That was another like really nerve wracking moment. So all the way through the journey, you're kind of at the edge of your seat. And then they arrive and the violin should be playing. It should be happy. And they should be able to find some sort of rest, right? These people who have been moving throughout their lives and along this journey. And then you have William Wells Brown dancing in and saying, come on, let's take the story on this road. So they're moving some more for another thousand miles. Finally, you get to Boston. And I mean, so it's like over and over again, you think, all right, this is going to be it. It's like one of those symphonies where... There are all these sort of fake endings. You think, ta-da, and that's it. And then, no, that's not it. And I really felt like it carried that way to the very end. I mean, you have them being chased by slave hunters. You have them escaping the country. And then you have them trying to figure out, how are we going to live? What are we going to do with our freedom? So it's like question after question. And it's really only, I mean, I stopped the story really only when their goals were met. And I felt like it took the entire 400 pages to really answer the questions that were raised in the very beginning of the book and with the onset of their journey. I hope we've told listeners how this Black woman managed to disguise herself. She did not speak. She would just nod, you said, and she was little. She wore glasses. She wrapped her arm. So when they'd pass into certain states, they had to sign things. Mm -hmm. And he, well, he wasn't her husband. They were in love and they wanted to be married, but they wanted to be free to be married, right? So originally they thought they would escape first and marry later. But because that was so impossible, the stakes were so high, they decided to love first and marry later. So they weren't married by law because slave marriages were not recognized, but they were married. They considered each other husband and wife. I got so nervous when he would take her on the train and leave her in the first class section. Mm -hmm. And then he would go back into the enslaved servant section of the Mm -hmm. train. And you wrote it so well that I was on the edge (laughs) of my seat. You know, they're going to find out. They're going to find out. (laughs) Um, As I said before, this would make a fabulous movie. Mm -hmm. Have you sold the movie rights? Uh, No, not yet. But... I guess I would venture to say that this story is just so inspiring of many different art forms. I would love to see, for example, a giant panorama, like, you know, they spoke with this giant panorama, which is like a precursor of the movies, right? It's almost like a screen. It's a huge painting that can be hundreds of feet long. It can move. It can be unfurled. They didn't have a moving one, but they and their friend William Wells Brown stood up in front of this. The lights were low. You know, the hall was dark. And then they would shine lights on different parts of this giant canvas to light up parts of the story that they were telling. I mean, I would love to see a panorama like that sometime, too. 
Um, so there's that really dramatic moment where Ellen has been hiding in Brookline. They think really that William's going to get killed because he's in Boston. He's up and around. He is not backing down. And they just think he's going to be captured or killed. So there's this one doctor from Brookline um, named Dr. Bowditch, and he offers to escort William to this hiding location. And William says, I'll go with you, but on one condition. And he pulls out a pistol and he gives it to this doctor. And he says, arm yourself, basically, and be ready to fight with me if we get stopped. And there's a big pacifist movement going on, too, uh, with these abolitionists. But he makes a decision he's going to do it. Even higher in terms of the stakes is I discovered very late in the game as I made a final return to the Massachusetts Historical Society, there's this beautiful, tiny little book. And in this book, Dr. Bowditch actually describes how his son, Nat, who was only 10 years old, was actually in that carriage between him and William. So the three of them went riding off into Brookline to go and find Ellen. So this is a very long detour, but Brookline has the significance for the crafts. And there was a really interesting community there where you had some people who are really actually supportive and connected to slavery and other people who are fighting against it. Good. I live in Cambridge, so I live not far from Brookline. You know, just to think about where the crafts were as children and what they endured and how they themselves yearned to learn and then how they passed on the learning, telling their story and then becoming teachers themselves and opening these schools um, in Africa, uh, teaching in England, and then eventually going back down to the South in 1870s United States, which was such a dangerous time for them to be there, teaching children and adults of all ages, uh, braving everything yet again. Um, we have just talked about an enslaved man who traveled with a gun. And the reason he traveled with that gun, he said he would never be captured. He'd let himself be killed before he'd ever be enslaved again. Yeah. And the gun actually was also a surprise. They don't, the crafts don't write about this gun in their narrative. There's no mention of a gun. So this was really interesting. This has to do with the newspaper research, which has been so much fun. I mean, I really learned so much from the newspaper accounts and they go all out of order. You know, sometimes I find little tiny details from much later papers or from papers that were not friendly to the crafts at all. They're throwing out these things. Anyway, what I found was in the 1870s, William Craft started a libel suit against people who were defaming his and Ellen's educational enterprises in the South. And he and Ellen both take the stand in this case that just drags on for days and also has all of Boston sort of riveted. And he is recounting again these times in slavery. And also um, he tells about the escape. And he talks about how when they arrive in Philadelphia. Now, I'll back up for a second here to say that in their narrative, there's kind of this slapstick-like moment of their arrival. So the crafts arrive disguised as master and slave. Then they go upstairs for a moment. They pray. Ellen comes down. She is changed. And the boarding house keeper at this place that they've entered, they say to William, where's your master? I, I need your master. And William says, right here, pointing to Ellen. And he's like, no, where's your master? Right here. Where's your master? And I'm really not kidding. And William says, actually, this is my master. And they explain the whole disguise. So it's kind of like, it's a humorous moment in the craft's written narrative. But 
the version that he tells in 1870 is different. So in this version, Ellen goes upstairs, William takes out a pistol and he lays it on the table and he explains who they are. And he says, I'm not afraid to use this if you reveal us. And the boarding house keeper actually, at that point, he laughs because he knows how scared they are, but he assures them that they're safe. And when I read that, first of all, I was like, oh, that's not how they tell in the book. But then I thought, oh my gosh, he's got a gun. They've had this weapon on this journey. And that really changes everything. The fact that at any moment in their journey, death at their own hands is actually a possibility. That came through. Mm -hmm. Which is what made your book in part so scary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they do say, you know, when you pull out a gun at the beginning of the show, something has to happen to it, right? It has to go Uh off. They say, if you bring it out in the first act, you better (laughs) shoot it in the second act. (laughs) Yes. Um, In this book, he, William, seems to be quite a narrator. Mm -hmm. Actually taking the dominant role of telling their story. Yes. And we're talking about 1848. Mm-hmm. This is decades before you would be allowed to tell such a story. Well, you do have people like William Wells Brown and Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison telling these stories on the road. So they've already paved the way a bit. Sojourner Truth is just getting started. Harriet Tubman is still in bondage at this time in 1848. So Ellen is the one who's really a pioneer. People have seen formerly enslaved men speaking, but Ellen as a formerly enslaved woman from the South is very, very new. And at first she is speaking, but then that changes over time. I mean, the demands for her as a speaker are that much higher because she's got all this in terms of gender to be battling as well, gender as well as race. People aren't accustomed to seeing any women uh, speaking out so much at this time. Also a woman who transformed herself into a man. Shocking. It was totally shocking at that time. You really have done a masterful, I hate to use that (laughs) word, but (laughs) you've done a, a wonderful job of writing. Thank you. Really. And the historical research is really very, very important. This book, it's so compelling. It's dramatic. It has all the elements of a great piece of fiction, which becomes even more extraordinary as real life, as nonfiction. Did you have an editor at SNS who was committed to this book start to finish? I had two incredible editors. So Don Davis acquired the book. And when I just remember the first time meeting with her and just feeling like I want to read the book that she would help me write. Um, I could already sort of see the pages coming, see the story shaping. And there was a lot of shaping because the first draft I wrote, uh, she basically told me I had to start over. (laughs) No. (laughs) She did. (laughs) How many words had you written? at least 100 pages. And actually, I went back and read the first page because I've been thinking about this so much. And I was like, oh my gosh, she was so right. (laughs) That's just not the way to do it. (laughs) So how I opened the book originally was with a pivotal scene. Uh, I mean, sort of the emotional core of the story, which is 
the moment at which William is auctioned off or sees his sister being sold. So that is the formative moment for him. And there are equivalent moments for Ellen, but it's a blinding moment, uh, a stunning moment in their narrative. And just expressed with such deep feeling, I felt like I needed to start the story. And then I'd found so much information about the whole sort of backstory. I sort of plunged headlong into this really, really long, what ended up being a digression. So basically it took me forever to start the crafts on their journey. And what Don told me was that I had to start the book where I started my proposal, which was at the start of the journey. And I said, well, that is great, but the story, if it starts like right in the middle here, there's all the material that I found before. So for moving forward, what do I do with all that back material? And she said, you gotta fit it in. The, the past and the present have to work together. I mean, that was the central challenge is how to weave the past and the present together and to lead with the momentum of the present, of their journey. So she didn't tell me how to break it down, but she told me where to begin. And then she actually ended up leaving for Bon Appetit magazine to become the editor-in-chief there. And that was fortunately towards the very end. Of, so she actually kept editing my book even after she was at Bon Appetit, but she also put my book in really excellent hands, in the hands of Bob Bender, who recently won a, uh, a big Bayou Award, I believe, <laughs> and who also edited Frederick Douglass. And he was also really amazing. And his eagle eye also further refined the story. So I feel really lucky to have had two exceptional editors who really believed in the story from the very beginning. You are very fortunate in that. Would you just speak a little bit about the proposal you wrote? This is like on television. Please do it. <laughs> and please do it in 25 words or less. <laughs> I remember feeling excited writing about it. I remember I opened it with a version of the cottage scene that you see as the first chapter of the book. So I start with a 4 a.m. preparation where the, the slavers are sleeping and there's candlelight and William and Ellen Craft are in their cabin and they are taking out the items of clothing one by one and they're getting ready to go on this incredible journey. So I remember starting with that and sort of also, I mean, going back to the cinema metaphor, pulling out and showing sort of flashes of the crowds and these incredible stars that they would become and talking about how they became celebrities, how they were so well-known at that time, but how when I came across their narrative originally, I had never heard of them before. So I know that I wrote about my personal experience and discovery with the story, and I had enough that I'd already found by the time I started writing this proposal that I was able to explain some of these discoveries there. You must have dug through a lot of libraries and microfilm. I don't think you could do all the research that you did online. Oh, certainly not. No, I traveled a lot. I think a lot of places I went, people didn't know what to make of me. <laughs> I traveled oh. a lot. And I did have a lot of uh, interlibrary loan and, and microfilm as well. I really salute you on this book. It's wonderful. It's beautifully written, fabulous history. And the research, it knocks me out. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and an oh, honor. Oh, it's wonderful. That was author Ilyan Wu 
speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly about her latest book, Master Slave, Husband Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. It was published by Simon & Schuster in January of this year, and this interview was recorded via Zoom on June 5th, 2023. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.